Uh, the writer's job is to inspire the artist, and the artist's job is to convey the verisimilitude of what the writer is trying to get across. Welcome to the Under the Mask podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror, thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics from the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colomb has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Cologne. Under the Mask Podcast, episode 29. Though a lot of my interviews have been with creators who've printed comics, there are more web comics available to read now more than ever. We're going to talk about the web comic format and how to successfully transition to a printed book. Our guest today is the co-creator and artist of the webcomic series, Impure Blood, which has been running since 2009. After successfully launching a print run for the first volume, Impure Blood, Volume 2, is now live on Kickstarter through November 11th. You can support it at bit.ly slash impureblood underscore v2. I'd like to introduce Nathan Luth. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, the first thing we're going to do, like I ask all my guests, is I want you to tell us a little bit about your story. Who are you and how did you get to be here today? Uh, let's see. I was, uh, let's see, a young nerd. Uh, I was a nerd from a young age. Uh, I I remember getting into comics uh, I found my Nana's Calvin and Hobbes books, I want to say when I was five or six years old, and because they were line drawings, you know, black and white line drawings, I took it to be a coloring book. So I <laughs> colored in uh, Nana's Calvin and Hobbes book, but I was also kind of reading along with them and like, what he, he turns into a spaceman and now there's dinosaurs. And uh, this is actually pretty interesting. Uh, so th- that was pr- that's probably my earliest memory, but what really drove it home for me was when I was eight, I want to say my, I was sick one and home from school one day and my dad went to the grocery store, ran some quick errand and he brought me home uh, a Spider-Man comic. Cause, Cause back in the day, kids, they had, they had comics in the grocery stores. It was crazy. But uh, yeah, I brought me home a Spider-Man comic and I forget the number, but it had these villains that nobody else remembers uh, called Night and Fog. And uh, pencils by Sal Buscema, of course. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, that was it. I was hooked. Spider-Man was my guy from that point on. I became like a regular at the comic shop. And yeah, so it was, and it was all downhill from there. And you know, had, had all, like so many, uh, had always loved drawing from an early age. I was just, uh, just always at it. And apparently was somewhat good at it. So when it came time for college, my parents were like, you're going to art college. And I'm like, okay. And, and, uh, and yeah, so uh, I've been blessed with having a very supportive 
uh, family. I don't think they've always gotten the stuff that I'm into, but they've never tried to steer me away from it. So I'm really appreciative for that. So you went to get a professional training at art college for drawing. That's right. Minneapolis College of Art and Design. It's a pretty good one. Uh, I like it. And I, it's kind of funny. I, I picked it specifically because they had a comics program and a comics degree that they offered there. Uh, but then halfway through, for some reason, I chickened out and went with a bachelor's of illustration. The rationale I used was that it was the more employable degree. So, but uh, uh, if I had to do it, but I, I always hung out with the comics people and, uh, you know, participated in the indie publications that the school put out, the anthologies. And uh, uh, every Friday, there was kind of a comics round table uh, that happened in the cafeteria around a literal round table. And uh, and I was always showing up for that as well. So, so uh, I wasn't exactly aware of it at the time, but it was kind of always where my heart was at. When did you feel that you started drawing comics and took the step from amateur to professional? Uh, when did I feel that way? I'm still waiting. <laughs> um, hopefully that'll happen someday. Objectively speaking, I started, I think my first paid comics gig was for a company called Roundtable. They're still around. I'm still working for them, in fact. And they specialize, they're a bit of a vanity press and they specialize in taking people's stories and hooking somebody who may not necessarily know how to, somebody who has a story idea and may not necessarily know how to write or create. And then they hook that person up with writers, graphic designers, artists, and uh like myself and they help put them put together a package to take to a printer or publisher. So my first professional paid comic gig was for them and a project called Overachievement in which I basically took a dude's, uh, a bit, this business guru guy that took his book and turned it into a graphic novel for him. So that was, uh, that was fun. It was a trip and I very distinctly remember the, the buzz and the high of being like, I'm a professional comic artist now. And what was the time frame on that? Uh, it came out around 2010. Even though it's a vanity press, their money spends just as good as anybody else's money. It does. It does. And uh, I also remember that the gentleman for whom I was uh, uh, creating the graphic novel was very, uh, he, he afforded me a lot of freedom uh, in most things. Uh, you know, if I wanted to add like a sci-fi twist or, uh, you know, a robot in the background, uh, I do remember there was there was a part about squirrels and how they brains are programmed and stuff like that. So he let me draw robot squirrels in this book. So that was pretty good. He wanted me to draw him like Tom Cruise, though. So that was, that was a little funny. But other than that, no, it was, uh, it was a great experience. And of course, your current project is Impure Blood, uh, which volume two is now live on Kickstarter. That Tell us correct. about Impure Blood. Impure Blood is a four-part steam fantasy graphic novel series. Uh, I originally uh, started producing it uh, with Nadia Bear way back in the far-flung year of 2009. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, four volumes at 100 pages a pop. So I put that out of the page at a rate of about one page per week. And all told, took us about eight years to finish. So 2009 to 2017. And we kind of took a very laissez-faire, if you build it, they will come approach to promoting it. Um, and we had a fan base happen, but it didn't really you know, go anywhere and never really became profitable. Um, so as I mentioned, finished it a couple of years back. Then it took a break and then was out at cons promoting it. And, you know, 
now kind of just occurred to me like, what, all right, so how are the, all these other people like being monetarily successful at, at doing what I just did? Like, like what, did, what am I not doing here? And uh, so I kind of started asking questions, kind of looking around, kind of uh, started, you know, doing some homework and some diligence and came to the conclusion that I wanted to relaunch the series uh, as a series of graphic novels on Kickstarter. Uh, uh, the story, by the way, is uh, what it's actually about. Uh, Impure Blood is a steam fantasy epic about a half-human gladiator named Roan who is freed from captivity by a mysterious young lady named Dara because she believes he holds the key to tracking down the last full-blooded member of the ancient mystical race. Only catches there's a, it seems to be an army of golems uh, <laughs> with, this, with the same mission and hot on their trail. Tell us about the villain of Impure Blood. Uh, this is super exciting because Volume Two is when the villain, uh, the big bad of the of the entire piece, shows up. And villain, uh, I, I hesitate to call him a straight up villain. Uh, he is definitely the antagonist, but uh, he comes from the uh, Magneto Killmonger school of antagonism, in which you, 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 once you get to know him, you really see where he's coming from and. And you really understand why he's doing it. Uh, we uh, there's a lot of um, I just like analogy, or but there's a lot of stuff happening in the book that we didn't realize, you know, ten years ago when we started it that uh, we was actually going to come to a head right in this cultural moment. Yeah, uh, the longer I sit with him, the uh, the more I think this guy, <laughs> this guy is kind of cool. What was the initial inspiration for Impure Blood? Uh, let's see. The, the initial inspiration, uh, Nadia was, and I believe still is, a hobbyist writer. And she had this idea that she'd kicked around in her head since high school, according to her. And so we kind of had decided to collaborate on something together. She had this idea that she pitched me, and originally it was a medieval epic high fantasy kind of thing. Back in 2009, you know, we had just come off of Lord of the Rings, and all these other things were coming out, and we kind of felt that the European medieval fantasy setting was done, and there wasn't a whole lot to do with that yet, um, and we, we were just becoming aware of the steampunk movement, and so we decided to add that twist onto it. And that was actually a lot of fun. It gave me a great new avenue to go down when it came to the aesthetic of the thing. And uh, also, uh, I'd done a bit of traveling at the time and was fortunate enough to see some actual European cities like Rome, Paris. And uh, so a lot of the locations were in, uh, were inspired by stuff and places that we saw there. And yeah, uh, and as for me, I have all manner of personal uh, references and influences. Uh, one of the main characters, Rowan, is very much influenced by Goliath from Gargoyles, uh, Caspian, kind of the aristocratic uh, financier of the group. He was the very first character that we initially clicked on, uh, but he was the very first character design that I ever did. And uh, kind of like, this guy's giving me kind of a Tybalt from Romeo and Juliet kind of vibe, you know, by way of John Leguizamo from the 90s movie. And Nadia was like, yes, that is exactly who I was thinking. And so that was locked in almost immediately. Other characters kind of like developed along the way. 
And uh, you've talked a lot about your co-creator and writer for the book, Nadia Bear. Mm-hmm. How did you two get working together? Well, uh, we uh, were actually romantically involved at the time. Uh, we met in Taekwondo and uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. And uh, so I don't recommend that all co-creators uh, start doing stuff together with your uh, significant other, but it seemed to work for us uh, in the long term. Um Okay, so I want to take you back to when you you two were starting out. Nadia's finished her script for Impure Blood and handed it off to you. Talk us through your process to take that script and turn it into a finished page. We used as not exactly the Marvel method because uh, the Marvel method seems very big and scary to me. That's kind of like why just very broad and I need a few more constraints uh, to work with. But it was kind of a halfway between that and a full scripted panel by panel description. So mostly what I got from Nadia was a page with the dialogue, what was supposed to be said and the actions that needed to be taken on the page. So more like uh, what you would expect from a television or a stage play script. And then it was uh, my joy and responsibility to translate that and uh, lay out the plot beat, decide what required the biggest emphasis on the page. She gave me a lot of freedom in terms of what worked best in, as far as timing and uh, pacing goes. So uh, after I got that, I uh, laid out the page. I I like to work in Photoshop and everybody tells me I need to switch to Studio Paint, but uh, I have been using Photoshop for like literally 20, 25 years at this point. So I'm, I'm kind of stuck. Take that, uh, do kind of a rough layout sketch, place the uh, word balloons, make sure that they were easy to follow and they're leading uh, the reader across the page the way I want them to. And then, yeah, just kind of focus in, sketches, inks, clean a lot on top of that. And and that gave me the, like, because I was the one-stop shop, um, that gave me a lot of freedom as far as uh, the pencils go. So I could keep those pretty loose and I didn't have to, uh, you know, didn't have to like get super specific uh, because uh, I would have to pass the off to an anchor. Um, yeah, the average page took me about, I want to say 12 hours or so. Eventually we have uh, about three quarters of the way through volume one. We brought on a flattest, a flat colorist uh, by the name of Samantha Summers, who was just a joy to work with the entire entire way through like sometimes I would give her pages like less than 24 hours before we were slated to post and she would still come through so she, she was a champ about that kind of thing and it afforded me a Saturday again every once in a while so you and Nadia worked like you said not Marvel style but kind of with a loose script with an outline and it gave you a lot of creative freedom yeah and that's kind of honestly my preferred way of doing things Writers, bless them, know what they want, don't always know how to, uh, I don't want to say how to execute it, but like don't necessarily know how to visualize it or what the visuals will look like as they're writing it, which is kind of fascinating to me because I am very much the, how, uh, as I'm reading it, a script, I'll be like, this is, here's where the emphasis should be. Here is uh, how many panels this will take on the page. Here's, you know, you know, like I'm breaking it down in my head as I, as I read it. And, uh, often all, all too often when you get writers that don't have experience working in visual mediums or comics specifically, you'll get asked for to put a lot of stuff almost too much stuff on one page. So having that freedom and the ability to go back and forth and say, uh, yeah, th- yeah, this is too much. That's not enough. This 
should go here, that should go there, uh, uh, was very, I think it wound up with a better end product. Because, uh, I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything too controversial here, but artists tend to be more visually oriented than writers. Yeah. And one thing I always say to my artists when I hire them on, I write a full script, but I always say, look, if there's something that's wrong or if I write it A, B, C, D and you feel right. an extra panel's needed, I always want to make sure that they feel like they have the ability to change something that they can make better just so that we can mm -hmm. tell the best story that we can. Right. Exactly. And that's, that is the best way to do it, in my opinion. That is how you really collaborate with somebody. If you're just looking for a tool uh, or a pencil to use, you know, you're, you got to respect your artist as more than just, you know, a tool to get your idea out onto the page. You got to trust their experience, their sense of the visual, their sense of pacing and movement of time across the page. And yeah, there's so much more that a good collaboration with an artist can bring to the table uh, than just making the marks on the page and just translating your vision into reality. Uh, any writer that doesn't take advantage of that is really only robbing their own product. Also, uh, don't call your artist a tool. They, they kind of get offended by that. Comics is a unique visual medium because mm -hmm. it's not like cinema where you can zoom the camera or you can pan the camera. If you wanted to zoom in on a character, that's going to be two or three separate panels in themselves. And we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, writers put almost too much stuff to fit on a, into a panel or a page. As an artist, what are some other mistakes you see writers make? That was kind of the biggest one, the asking for too much on, on one page or even in one panel. Let's see. The other big one is kind of arguing with your artist a little bit. If an artist says, hey, this is going to be, I, I'm not saying that you should give your artist like this carte blanche or no, don't, whatever you do, don't argue with the artist, but just not listening to the artist or getting getting missed if the artist isn't getting it. That that was kind of another big thing that I've experienced. Uh, not going to name names, of course, but uh, I had one writer that I worked for that I was kind of scratching my head about one scene and I'm kind of like, so is this character feeling this? Is this character feeling bad? But I mean, I thought early in the story that this kind of, early in the story you mentioned XYZ, so I was under the impression that ABC. And so, you know, I just tried to ask clarifying questions. And the more I, the more questions I asked, the more uh, upset they got about it. So <laughs> um, clearly kind of interpreting that as me saying that the, the work was bad when really I was just like, I mean, well, there's a fundamental problem right there. If the I, the artist, your co-creator is not uh, getting what you're saying, then maybe there's a problem. And also, that's not going to be a collaborative experience that's going to last very long. So I would say check your ego at the door and remember that you're not actually writing for the audience, you're writing for the artist. Uh, the writer's job is to inspire the artist and the artist's job is to convey the verisimilitude of what the writer is trying to get across. So it's a, it's all a big, it's all a big communication uh, cluster kind of a deal. And I want to drop just a little unsolicited advice to the writers who are listening into this podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something that's part of my process. And if you want to hear more about that, you can go back to episode 23, where I actually did an interview and and uh, talked about my process. But what I do when I'm writing my script is I'll actually draw out, draw it out panel by panel as if I were the artist. Now my art is atrocious. 
but it helps me see on the page okay this panel here i know only one action can happen per panel like you mm-hmm. can't do hey somebody punches and kicks the bad guy because that's yeah. two separate panels but it just helps Indeed. me to visualize that and i will also do uh, multiple pages at a time so i can kind of see the flow and pacing and all that absolutely i i cannot sign off on that hard enough and also if there are any writers listening that are worried that the artist is going to feel like uh you're stepping on their toes or trying to tell them what to do for me at least i would say no that is actually incredibly helpful to know kind of where your head is at to know what you had in mind and as long as you're willing to uh let us help you make it better then then yeah no that that's a that is an extremely helpful thing to do actually Nathan, what have been the biggest obstacles and challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? For me personally, I am kind of constantly always amazed that uh, this is your classic uh, artist imposter syndrome kind of thing going on here, but I'm kind of always amazed that people like what I do. Uh, And I think this is pretty a common thing for artists in general. This thing that I've been doing since birth. I mean, what, you you know, uh, people like this people, you know, want to give me money to do this. (laughs) That that is something that I struggled with initially and kind of continue to some days. I always felt like I'm not good about talking about myself and talking about my work and uh, just being like, you know, it's just a thing I do or whatever. Um, The solution that I found to that is to trust your audience. Your audience is comprised of intelligent, thoughtful people with opinions and uh, a life history and all of these things. They are fully fledged three-dimensional human beings and they see something in your work that they like, even if to you or to me, rather, it is something mundane or as mundane as, you know, being able to write a paragraph or something like that. So, so yeah, tr- uh, trust your audience and let them, uh, yeah, just let them guide you. Let them like you. Let them like you. Well, why won't you let the, your audience love you? And kind of following up with that, what do you feel has been your biggest mistake? Uh, it, it actually kind of does follow up on that because uh, the biggest mistake I made, at least initially, was taking, as I mentioned, that uh, if you build it, they will come approach to impure blood. Uh, initially, when we were actually producing it, we were very passive about it. We were we would go to the cons, but we were kind of always the people who were like, uh, you know, head down at the table. And so, yeah, we would go to the cons and we would, you know, keep our heads down working or working on this, that, or the other thing, drawing or writing. And we'd look up and, you know, kind of engage with people as they came to the table, but we never really went outside of our little sphere and our little bubble. And of course, never really uh, did anything that involved collecting our audience and never really uh, put in place any method of, you know, uh, galvanizing and directing and collecting our audience. Very, always very um, meh on, or always very lukewarm on social media and of course no mailing list. Had a comment section that we interacted with people with, but that was kind of about it. As I started to look into what the other people around me were doing to be successful, whereas where I was not, you know, that was kind of one of the big things. Get your mailing list, get your, uh, collect your people, collect your email addresses uh, so that when you launch a product or a book, you know how to find the people who like your thing and tell them, hey, 
this thing that you like, uh, well, it's up on Kickstarter right now. So, you know, help us out, help, uh, help us help you help us make more stuff for you. Um, so I think a lot of artists are, and I was one myself are afraid of being vocal of openly asking their audience to come and support them and for being aggressive. I don't want to say aggressive, uh, assertive to be, uh, they're afraid of being assertive enough and being pushy and, uh, saying, Hey audience, uh, if you like, if you like what I'm doing, uh, this is, this is what I need from you to help me keep doing that thing. And on the other side of that coin, what do you feel has been your best moment? Uh, best moment thus far has definitely been launching that. Yeah, launching that first Kickstarter, and well, and well, I should say closing out that first Kickstarter because it was. I've had two real moments of clarity in my career. Uh, one was the. I, I used to and still sometimes draw caricatures at fairs and festivals and stuff like that. So the very first time I ever drew a caricature uh, and like, and somebody gave me like, I drew a thing and somebody put cash money in my hand for it. It was just this amazing, like, <gasps> you, you know, like all the lights in my brain went off and, you know, I had like a dopamine high for the rest of the day. And uh, it was just like, it, it was like crack. I love that. Uh, like I, I need more of this. I need to do this. I'm, this is, this is what I am doing. Oh my gosh. And it was that very same experience that I had at, at the closeout of the first Kickstarter. It's like, holy crap, I can do this. Uh, for the longest time that had seemed just like an impossible, you know, top of the mountain, uh, kind of goal that, uh, like, Oh, other people can do that. I don't know if I can ever do that. Like that seems so hard and complicated. I don't think I could ever do that. And then I did it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, not only can I do this, but this is repeatable. This is, this is viable. This is like an actual uh, path that I could take. I I can do this. You know? So, uh, there, there you go. You got, you got two, two for the price of one. The, uh, the moment, when a path is opened up to you and you can kind of see down it and there's good things down it. Uh, those are really two times in my career that I've experienced that. Yeah. And it's always with Kickstarter. And also I, I found with my first time picking up freelance work as a freelance writer mm-hmm. and kind of, you talk about it ahead of time. And during the Kickstarter, you're pushing the campaign and you're seeing the numbers go up and you mm-hmm. have the promise of money, but when it hits your account, that makes it real. Mm-hmm. And you actually say, <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Tangible. Yes. Yeah. And here's another, uh, another tip for the writers out there. Uh, I go to conventions and I get like every convention I always get maybe like one to three, uh, of the, Hey man, I like your stuff. We should totally work together. I've got this great idea and I think you'd be perfect for it. Uh, kind of pitches. And I mean, it's great and it's flattering. Don't get me wrong, but I've kind of taken a, I'll believe it when I see it mentality and position when it comes to that. Cause 99% of the time, uh, I never hear from that person again, or uh, I do get that follow-up email, and it's clear that they have—they don't really have any kind of plan. <laughs> they just, you know, they just want their thing done, but they don't know how to, like, what's involved with it. 
one of my favorite things I've ever heard. And it was kind of hilarious. I, found, I heard this from a, you know, just this guy plucking on his guitar. You know, he had like a small audience. He's sitting in gazebo and this country western guy plucking on his guitar is like, no, just remember folks, you can steal a man's money and he can earn that back. But if you steal a man's time, he ain't never earned that back. So respect other people's time as you will lend respect yours. And that's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Just, uh, uh, if you want something to someone to do a thing for you, uh, you need to be respectful of what you are asking of them in return. That's a great segue into my next question. Mm-hmm. What is your best advice that you would give to someone who wants to do what you do? All right. Two things. One, value yourself and your work. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, that's probably one of the biggest uh, obstacles that most of us artists have is getting over that idea that what you do isn't anything special. Uh, You got to think of yourself as a contractor, like a plumber or an electrician or a doctor. You have an ability that the person uh, that is contracting you does not have and you are providing a service. So you need to value that and value yourself and the work that you do. And thus segueing into my second point of advice is get yourself some small business management and marketing skills because a a few lucky people are working in-house at like Blizzard or Disney or whatever, but the overwhelming majority of us out there are our own business, uh, our our own one-stop shop for whatever and everything. So you are, you're going to become a better artist just by virtue of the fact that art is something that you want to do and enjoy doing. You are going to be naturally driven and compelled to get better at art. If being becoming a business and making money at that art is something that you want to do as well, then you absolutely owe it to yourself to figure out what you are worth, how to manage yourself and your business, and how to promote yourself and your business. Uh, and parents of 14-year-olds at my table, are, I, I always see their eyes light up whenever I say that. They're like, oh, this guy, yes, 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 little Timmy or Julia, uh, listen to this guy. All right, everyone. Impure Blood is live on Kickstarter right now through November 11th. Go check it out at bit.ly slash impureblood underscore v2. Nathan, where else can we find you online? You can also check out my website, NathanLuthIllustration.com. And if you want, you can check out Impure Blood in its entirety at ImpureBloodWebcomic.com. I'm also on, you know, the holy trinity of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at NathanLuthIllustration. Great. And we'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes below. Rock on. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Bill, it's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the Under the Mask podcast with Bill Colomb. Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you've found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Why Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off. Under the Mask Podcast.